So we're in week two of a series entitled, Does God Want You to Be Happy? Last week, we answered the question with a resounding yes. Yes, he does. God is happy, which might be a life-changing thought for some of you right there. God is happy. And a happy God wants you to be happy. And he gave you a gospel of happiness. At least that's according to Isaiah, uh, that uh, the beautiful feet would come down the mountain bearing a gospel of happiness written 750 years before Christ. And so last week, I just wanted to, to build a biblical case that the human quest for happiness is not carnal. It's not neutral. It's actually intricately connected into our quest for God. Yes, God does want you to be happy, and he gave you a gospel to secure it. Sin will destroy it, no doubt. Forgiveness will restore it, and the presence of God will fill it. And so today, what I want to do is build off of last week. I presented two options on how to deal with happiness in our lives. Option one is we allow our circumstances to dictate our happiness. And so we're living our lives and the market goes up or down. Uh, the business deal goes through or doesn't. Uh, we meet the person or we don't. And we're happy or we're not. Circumstances dictating our happiness. There's another way to live life, and that's where your happiness dictates your circumstances. And so when the circumstance arises, you just step into it and you bring your happiness with you. And where does that happiness come from? Where does it come from? It comes from this gospel of happiness, this good news that Jesus came to bring. What I want to do beginning today and then over the next two Sundays is talk about the steps then that we take to live out happiness in that way. By the way, if you're new and you've already heard the word happy more in church than you did your previously 30 years, um, let me also tell you that we went over how the word happiness is all over your Bible. It's just disguised in the word blessed. But in the King James, when they wrote that word blessed into your Bible, everyone would have understood it to mean happy, happy. And so this idea of happiness um, not in the scriptures is a lie. It's all over it. Also, uh, it was just recently that Christians began distinguishing between the word happy and joy. And that was never there before. Spurgeon, who I quoted earlier in the 1800s, would constantly interchange the words because in his opinion, they meant the same thing. So yeah, yeah God wants you to be happy. This morning, I want to talk about the, the first step I think we can take to arrive at a deep-seated happiness, um, but also a happiness that isn't just at the bottom of our heart, but actually overflows out of the top. Now, this series comes out of a, a bit of my personal testimony. As an 18-year-old, I took my Bible, and I was a freshman in college at Hillsdale College at the time, and I, I took my Bible, and it was the only time in my life that I turned my back on God. And so I took the Bible, and I put it on the top shelf and said to myself, if it doesn't make me happy, then why should I do this? Why should I build my life around something that doesn't make me happy? And I could not see both a life of following Christ and a life of being happy. 
See, I lived with this internal divide between holiness and happiness. And I had heard routinely, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. And when we create a, a tension that isn't supposed to exist between holiness and happiness, then what it often does is creates people that are neither holy or happy. See, in our quest then for holiness, it can create such a despair that it often then makes us crave happiness in a way that isn't holy. This divide was never supposed to exist in the Christian heart. There is to be and is to be for the Christian, yes, a desire for holiness, but a happiness that exists right alongside with it. In Colossians chapter 3, obviously immediately after Colossians chapter 2, Paul is addressing the church at Colossae, and he wants to, um, he's warning them in this letter from what is known as the Colossian heresy. Some people think that was a specific heresy. Other people think it was just more of a general warning uh, against false teaching and uh, certain things that had crept into the early church. But at the end of Colossians 2, what is um, uh, um, certainly present is a group of Christians who are doing all of the right things, but doing it with the wrong perspective. Maybe you've known this. Maybe you've done all the right things with the wrong perspective, and it's created as much unhappiness in your life as just doing the wrong things. And so at some point, some people just say, well, if I'm doing all the right things and I'm just as unhappy, then why don't I just go do the wrong things? And so Paul is looking in at the church like that, and he writes Colossians 3 to them in response. I think Colossians 3 is one of the most helpful chapters in the scriptures, one of the most helpful chapters on understanding Christian transformation, particularly if you've grown up in an environment that was heavy on do the right things, but it didn't produce a vibrant Christian life. 16 years after being a college freshman, I'm 34, 16 years after being a college freshman, here's something I've learned. Now, the closer I walk in alignment with God's will through his spirit, the happier I become. But it took some understanding along the way to get me there. Some understanding that started with Colossians 3. A few months after I put my Bible up on my shelf, I got invited to a Bible study. And I went to the Bible study. I grabbed my Bible off of the shelf and went down into the basement of my dorm and sat. And we went through a Bible study. And, and I had my uh, message translation of the Bible. It was covered in duct tape because the binding had worn out. And I sat down. And the guy leading it said, turn to Colossians 3. And I opened it up. And I read these words in the message translation. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your... I skipped two verses. That's not what I read first. I was like, this is, does not sound as good as I remember it. How is this life-changing? In an alternate reality... Who knows what I'm doing? 
These are the words I actually read. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. My whole life didn't change in that moment. It took four or five years for me to arrive at a different place fully, but this was the start. And something came alive in my heart. If I'm serious about this Christian life, act like it. And the word in here that is easier to see in the ESV where it says, seek the things that are above is a Greek word, zeteo. And what it means is to be so consumed in a passionate search for something that it absorbs your entire life. Seek the things that are above. Take your entire being and focus it in on something. As a freshman in college, when I went off to school, I majored in international business and political science. I had actually written down life goals because I read all the books that you're supposed to read in high school. Well, maybe not in high school, but the books you're supposed to read if you want to accomplish something. And so I actually had a written stated goal when I went off to college on a note card that I was supposed to read every morning because Napoleon Hill told me to. Some of you will understand that, others of you will not. He said, be a billionaire run for president. That was the goal. As if anyone would ever do that, right? So that's kind of a joke, but okay. That was my goal. And you know why it was? Because I looked at that and I saw, and I thought, that will make me happy. And that will take everything I am. Then I read these words somewhere in my freshman year. Seek the things that are above. Pursue Christ in such a way that it takes everything that you are. If you jump down to the end of it, it says, see things from his perspective. And if we're going to begin to live a life of happiness, then the first step, a life of joy, of fulfillment, these words are interchangeable. If we're going to live that life, the first step in it is going to be to see life from his perspective. Or as Paul writes it, seek the things that are above. So what are the things that are above? The next line is where Christ is. The first thing that is above is Christ, is Jesus. It's to take our eyes off of the ground, uh, the one metaphor uses, or to take our eyes off of the things of this earth, to take our eyes off of, in this case, ourselves. To not look to myself as the source of my fulfillment, the, the source of my hope, as the whole world revolving around me, but instead to just gaze at the beauty of Jesus. Uh, the, uh, the letter to the Hebrews said that the angels longed to look into the gospel, that they longed to look into the beauty of this gospel of Christ uh, um, crucified and, uh, and then risen and, and paying for our sins. The, the angels uh, from, from long ago, they didn't know this gospel. We get to see it, though, and we get to gaze at the beauty of this gospel. And the first thing we're supposed to do to move our eyes from the ground up 
to seek the things that are above is just to seek Christ and to gaze at Jesus and to take our eyes off of ourselves. To be like the person in the parable who sold the field so that they could buy what was hidden in it because it was worth so much more. To forsake all other things and just to gaze at the beauty of Jesus. And at 18, I certainly... My perspective was not Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It was me, me, me. The second thing I think seeking the things that are above means is eternity, not earth. In fact, a careful reading of Paul's letters will show you that one of the things that Paul thought was most important for Christians to be able to change was that they would have an eternal perspective. And so he writes it all throughout his letters. An eternal, not an earthly perspective. Seek the things that are above. Seek the things of eternity, not the things of earth. It's almost a caricature or a joke that I wanted to be a billionaire and a president. Could you seek more the things of earth? Seek not the things of earth, but the things of eternity. How does this relate to happiness, by the way? When we're seeking the things of earth, there will be things that happen in our lives that if we have an earthly perspective, it will be impossible to find joy. The tragedy will happen. The betrayal will occur. The diagnosis will come. And in those moments, with an earthly perspective, joy will be impossible. But when you have an eternal perspective, you can actually look through the tragedy and still see joy on the other side. It's only possible through an eternal perspective. Seek the things that are above. Let me say this more clearly. If your deepest pursuit is still the things of this earth, you will never arrive at the happiness that is promised. It is only when your passionate, full life pursuit becomes the things of eternity that you can arrive at the joy that is waiting for you. How is it that Christ could look at the cross of all places, the cross and its brutality, and it say he counted it as joy because he was looking at that? No, because he was looking through it. He was looking through it and he was seeing what was on the other side of it. What? Salvation, redemption, yours. And so he could even see through the cross. Seek the things that are above. Seek Christ, not self. Seek eternity, not earth. The third, I think it means to seek the things that are above is to seek his timing, not our timing. There's actually a biblical word for this, kairos, exactly at the right time. If you made a list of all the things that make you unhappy in life, I bet if you dug down underneath them, a lot of them would have at their root that things did not operate on your timeline. You didn't have the child when you thought you should or didn't get married at the age you wanted. The business didn't go as quickly as you thought. 
when we seek the things that are on this earth, when we seek our timing, it has this tendency of creating incredible despair, distrust of God, depression in our own lives, because all we can do is look and say, no, once I get that, once I get here, once I do this in my timing, uh, uh, the way I want it, then, then I'll get what I want. Then I'll feel that sense of happiness. But when you can seek the thing that is above, when you can actually believe that God's timing is better than your timing, then you have unlocked something that can produce happiness. When you can actually look and say, the waiting is better than receiving right now because God, you can do something in the waiting that I can't do with the extra time. Then the person who's been single longer than they want to be single. I was there. I didn't get married until 30, right? Uh, that, uh, then they can look and they can say, okay, God, there's something you can do in this that is even better than me getting what I think I most need or want. In my case, she was five, six and plays the piano. She was right up here leading worship earlier. Not playing the piano earlier, just to clarify. She was playing the guitar. Well, I got weird quickly. Okay. What if one of the keys to your happiness was just simply trusting that God's timing is better than yours? And so every time you begin to rush, and every time you begin to worry, and every time that steals your joy, you just sought the things that were above and said, God, your timing and what you deliver on the other side must be incredible. It must be amazing. Seek the things that are above. At the end of Colossians chapter 2, the Christians are doing, again, the right things with the wrong perspective. Oftentimes in Christianity, particularly Christianity that um, uh, kind of swings to the side of what we would classify as religion now, often what it does is it would skip over Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and just jump to verse 5 and to verse 12. And so the conversation might go like this. Well, I'm not very happy in life. This conversation never happened to me, but this is how I would kind of summarize that season of life that I've been talking through. I'm not very happy in life, and, and my natural religious response would be, okay, I just need to start doing the right things, and I need to stop doing the wrong things. You ever been told that? I'm not very happy in life. Great. Just stop sinning and start doing all of these things, and you'll get there. And what do you do? You try it and you give it your best effort. You do all of the right things. You don't do all of the things that you're not supposed to do. And you do that for a season. And guess how happy you are at the end of it? Not any happier than you were before it. You're just like they were at the end of Colossians 2, doing all of the right things with the wrong perspective. That's why Paul doesn't start there. He doesn't jump to, now do this and don't do that. Now, at some point in time, the world actually got smarter than religious Christianity and tried to fix the jump to the do. And so at some point, the world, we would call this psychology or self-help, jumped over to, I would say, verse 2, where it says, set your minds. And so the idea became, it's not just about the doing or the not doing, it's about the dwelling, it's about the thinking. 
And so we'll think and grow rich, right? That was Napoleon Hill. Or we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll alter our, our, our brain and, and we'll think correctly, we'll think properly, and then that will change my doing. And some of you have played this game. And so you have woken up and you have said, I'm going to think happy thoughts and I'm going to think my way to joy. And if I think enough, if I dwell enough on the right things, then I'll start to do the right things. And the combination of the doing and the dwelling will get me where I want to go. And then at some point, Christians started actually abusing scripture in such a way to teach this kind of thinking. Like, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, there's 11 chapters before that, and it starts with a therefore. It's not where Paul starts. Paul starts with change your desires. Then change your dwelling or your thinking. Then change your doing. It's the proper order that produces the life of happiness and joy that God wants us to have. See, you can do all of the right things, but if you don't have the proper desires in the moment when you don't get the thing that you want, or it doesn't happen in the timing that you think, or the tragedy occurs, then no matter what you've done or not done, you won't be able to experience joy. It is only when your desires are properly ordered that all of that after can still produce joy. Now after, by the way, how do we arrive here then? Christian, we have to learn to repent at the desire level. See, we're really good at repenting at the doing level. Oh God, I shouldn't have done that, I'm sorry. Oh God, I should have done this, I'm sorry. And repenting at the doing level isn't bad. We ought to do that, but we've got to peel this thing way back and you got to get to the bottom and repent at the desire level. Repenting at the desiring level, or I'm sorry, repenting at the doing level is like putting a cup under a leak. Will it solve the problem? Temporarily, but eventually the problem will be more powerful than the solution and it will overcome you. If you really want transformation in the Christian life, it's not just repenting of the doing. It's not just repenting of the dwelling. It's repenting of the desiring. And so 18-year-old me didn't just have to say, all right, God, I'm not going to do this anymore, and I'm not going to do that anymore, and I am going to do this. 18-year-old me had to go back and say, if I really want to experience joy, I'm going to have to start seeking with my entire being eternity, not earth. I'm going to have to start trusting his timing, not my timing. I'm going to have to start seeking Christ, not myself. I had to change at that level, and so do you. Otherwise, you're just going to keep circling around the block. Otherwise, you're just going to have to keep switching cups. And once we change at the desire level, once we repent at the desire level and let the grace of Christ come in and push it all out and really change our desires, yes, then we ought to set our minds and change the way we think. And those are all good things. There are plenty of scripture like Philippians 4a, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, think about these things. There is Romans 12, right? To be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There are lots of Verses that talk about our thinking, but those have to come out of changed desires. And then, yes, we should change our thinking. 
We should allow God to begin to transform our mind because our thinking will affect our doing. But our thinking will affect our doing much more powerfully when our desires are affecting our thinking. Did you catch that? If desires are here and dwelling is here and doing is here, the proper way to change is not to jump and just change your doing. It's a real life change. And it's not to um, allow my dwelling to change my doing. It's to allow my desiring to change my thinking. And then that will change my doing. I didn't have language for that, of course, when I was 18. I just read that verse and thought, well, that sounds exciting. That sounds like it could take the best of who I am. That sounds like, like, like maybe that is actually worth pursuing and, and actually seeking eternity instead of earth and not loving the idea of power and money more than the idea of, of being in your kingdom. And I didn't get to happiness in, in a moment. It took four or five years more. But this was, this was a beginning. And the rest of Colossians, by the way, it, uh, the rest of this particular section does get to the point where we, we should set our minds on things above and we should do some things and not do some things. And so, of course, if you're in sin, yeah, you should stop. Sin destroys happiness. Sin destroys relationship. Sin leads to death. Sin is not good. It's never good. We shouldn't prolong our quest to stop it or kill it. But if you think just stopping sinning and not changing these other two things are going to lead to where you want, I'm sorry, but you're mistaken. Follow the order. That's why Paul wrote it like he did. There's a picture, a word picture, a story that has helped me understand this passage a little bit better in Colossians. Again, this didn't come to me that night. This came to me years later. Because at, at 18, I was just in the dorm reading, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. And I was 100% self-absorbed and 100% absorbed in the things of this earth. And that's where my life was headed. So let me tell you a little story that might help us understand this. So the Big Ten announced they're going to play football again this year, right? No one's happy. Okay, cool. Um, if you don't like football, by the way, every time I say football, you just think ballet, okay? Or cooking show, whatever it might be. Let's pretend it's November, and by November, I mean January. Let's pretend it's January. Football season's over. Your favorite team is undefeated, playing your least favorite team that is also undefeated for the national championship. Clearly, they're not rivalries or in the same conference. They're playing for the national championship. You get invited to the game, and you're going to go to the game, and you're going to have the best seat in the house. And you're going with people that you love to watch football with. So you get invited. You don't have to pay for anything, by the way. And it's January, and in our hypothetical situation here, COVID doesn't exist, and 100,000 people are allowed in a crowd again. 
So you're at the game and you get there and you're obviously very intrigued and very excited about what's about to take place and what's going to happen and how this day is going to play out. And uh, it's supposed to be an incredibly happy, joyous time because you're going to get to something that's like a once in a life opportunity. And you get there and you roll in with your friends and, and you're walking to your seat and you get to your seat. And as soon as you get to your seat, you go down to put down your water. And as soon as you put down your water, you see right next to it a piece of popcorn. And you just start staring at the popcorn. And you think, that is the most beautiful piece of popcorn I have ever seen. Look at the texture. And the teams run out of the locker rooms with the fireworks and everything going on and 100,000 people cheering. Well, actually 99,999 because you're looking at popcorn. And the world's Second greatest singer, Lindsay being the first. The world's second greatest singer is singing the national anthem, Josh Groban. And it's the real national anthem, not the Fergie version. And it's going to be amazing. And he's singing the national anthem and the flag is waving, but you're staring at popcorn. And then the game begins, and there's the kickoff, and, and, and then one team scores, and another team scores, and it's a really good first half. And the announcers are just talking about what an incredible drama-filled game. And it gets to halftime, and your favorite artist is performing at halftime, and you don't hear any of it, and you don't know what's going on, and you've missed all of it because popcorn. Popcorn. And then it gets into the second half, and your team is behind, but then they catch up, but then the team that you don't like scores a touchdown with only 90 seconds left, and they kick it off to your team, and your team starts driving down the field, and there's an amazing fourth down conversion, and then the crowd is going at least half of it crazy because they're so excited about the comeback. And then with no time left, uh, the wide receiver catches it at the tip of the end zone, touchdown, and for whatever reason, the team decides to go for two, your team, in one of the most epic endings of a national championship game ever, and you don't see any of it because you're staring at popcorn. And they go for two, and they get it, and the crowd goes crazy, half of them in despair, and half of them in utter, complete joy. And you don't see any of it because you're staring at popcorn, and all along, you missed it all. And somebody needed to tap you on the shoulder and to steal Paul's words in Colossians 3 and say, look up. You're missing the whole point. When you look and you instead of Christ. At earth, instead of eternity. When you get caught up in your timing, instead of his timing, you are staring at popcorn and you are missing the whole point. Look up. I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. Because you thought when the thing finally happened, you'd have it. 
and you don't. Look up. That's where the action is. You serious about this new life in Christ? Act like it. Seek the things that are above. Look up and search for it with everything that you are because that's where real life is. Your spouse is dying because you think that work is so important. Look up. You're missing your kids growing up. Look up. You think this empire you're building on this earth is going to last? Look up. That's where real life is. See things from his perspective. When you do that, a joy will begin to form at the bottom of who you are that can never be taken. And when that joy then becomes the foundation, eventually a happiness will overflow from the top. But the happiness will never overflow from the top until the joy is at the foundation and the joy will never be there until you look up. Today, we're gonna end by taking communion. Go ahead and pull out your pack. You're going to end up taking communion on your own. But before we do, I just want to let you know what we believe about it and how I want you to go about this. We believe the wafer or the bread is a representation of Christ's body broken for us. We believe that the juice is a representation of the blood of Christ poured out on the cross as the only payment for sin and absolutely essential to salvation. And we believe that Christ hung on the cross, eyes to the ground, so that you and I could live a life with our eyes to the sky. And so today, as you take communion, I want you to let God speak to you. And I want you to repent at the desire level if need be. And ask him to help you live a look up life. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.